I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're starting a new series today on what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Typically, our usual practice is to preach through whole books of the Bible. Um, But in this case, we're not committing to the entirety of Matthew. We're going to cover chapters 5 through 7. However, the goal will still be to preach them in keeping with the context of Matthew's gospel and, of course, the context of uh, the New Testament and Scripture as a whole as well. Uh, So let's begin by reading. We're going to read Matthew 5, 1 to 12. And then we're really going to focus on verses 1 to 5, but we'll read through to verse 12. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we just kind of drop into Matthew chapter 5 here, I think a little bit of context would be helpful to know how we got to this point where Jesus starts to utter these words and teach us in this manner. So if we consider just briefly the first four chapters of of Matthew, um, Matthew has been depicting throughout these chapters, um, he's been revealing to his readers that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And he shows this, he demonstrates this in a number of ways. So he begins uh, in Matthew chapter 1 with a genealogy, everybody's favorite. And uh, this genealogy has a particular emphasis on uh, Abraham and David. It was promised, of course, to Abraham, if you recall, Uh, Genesis chapter 15, that it would be through his offspring that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then fast forwarding many years later, it was promised to David that it would be one of his descendants who would sit on the throne forever in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So the particular offspring that was promised to Abraham, the particular individual who would bring about this blessing, is also going to be David's son, the king who is going to reign forever. And Matthew's genealogy is making it very clear that Jesus Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David. Right in the very first verse, he says that. And so as Matthew gets to the birth account of Jesus, 
We read of the Magi who came, and they go to Herod, and they request, where is he who is born King of the Jews? Right, the King of the Jews. Well, that's a correct question. That's what Jesus is. He is a king indeed. He's the son of David. We're asking where the King of the Jews is to be born. Herod understands something of this, and he asks his men around him where the Christ was to be born, where the Messiah was to be born, the anointed one, the one to whom the Old Testament scriptures are pointing. So he, he's, he's, he's showing, again, Jesus is the fulfillment of these scriptures. And he continues to demonstrate that by showing that Jesus was the true Israel. So just as Israel, we know, went down to Egypt and were enslaved there. Similarly, Jesus also went down and spent time as a baby, as a child, at least in Egypt with his parents when they were on the run from Herod. So after Herod finds out the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. He orders the children under two to be put to death. So they are warned, Joseph and Mary, and they flee to Egypt. And then in due time, just as Israel was called out of Egypt, so likewise Jesus, God's true son, was taken out of Egypt. And Matthew tells us in chapter 2, verse 15, that this was a fulfillment of Scripture, namely Hosea 11, verse 1, that says, Out of Egypt... I called my son. So there's pattern there. God's people, Israel, that's being now in a much greater way being fulfilled in Christ, the true Israel, the true son of God who has come. Remember Israel in the book of Exodus, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, Israel is called my firstborn son, God's firstborn son. And now Jesus is the true and faithful son. And he too brought out of Egypt. So he's fulfilling the promises made to Abraham, to David. He's also fulfilling scripture in the sense that it's all pointing towards him in these types and shadows that he's fulfilling. As we continue in Matthew chapter 3, we have John the Baptist who begins to preach. He preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The promises, the hopes of the Old Testament are about to be fulfilled the kingdom is at hand. The king is coming. In the Gospel of John, of course, uh, we find John the Baptist preaching about the one who is to come, Jesus, the one whose sandals I am unworthy to untie, the one who is greater than me. He was before me. He's greater than I. He must increase. I must decrease. John here in Matthew is preaching. It's, there's not as much information as maybe in the Gospel of John, but he is also, as in all of the, the Gospels, uh, his ministry is framed in light of what Isaiah said, that John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He's going before the Messiah to proclaim he's on his way, he's coming, his kingdom is at hand. And then, of course, Jesus goes to John and is baptized by John, it says, to fulfill all righteousness. And then from there, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and in the wilderness, he spends 40 days and 40 nights there where, at the, where he's fasting. And then at the conclusion of those 40 days and 40 nights, he's met by Satan himself and he is tempted in the wilderness. Again, this is another clear comparison to the nation of Israel. They came out of Egypt. They were into the wilderness and there they are faced with temptation. And of course, we know how did they fare rather miserably. And this is why they end up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness before eventually going into the promised land. 
And now Jesus is 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. However, unlike unfaithful Israel, Jesus, the true son, is faithful. He conquers the temptation that is before him. And then we have the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, midway through chapter 4. Matthew tells us that Jesus lived in the town of Capernaum in Galilee. And he tells us this was to fulfill Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. So he tells us this in Matthew 4, 15, where he quotes Isaiah saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them has light dawned. Matthew saying this was happening as Jesus is living in Capernaum and begins his ministry, begins teaching. This light begins to shine in Zebulun and Naphtali. These are the old uh, area, uh, the, the tribes of Israel that were up in that Galilee area. Of course, Isaiah says even beyond the Jordan. And we find that right at the end of chapter four, Jesus fame was spreading all throughout the land, even into Syria, people coming from Judea and Jerusalem across the Jordan, all around this area, the people are seeing this great light. Matthew's telling us that the Messiah has come and this is now a season and a time of fulfillment that the people were entering into. The hopes and promises being met in the Lord Jesus Christ who has come. And as Jesus began his ministry, we're also told, just like John, he preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. So we have the king who was promised, this long-awaited king, the Messiah. He arrives. It's been proclaimed. He is coming. Matthew's helping us understand this and see this. John has prepared the way. And now Jesus arrives, likewise preaches to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he goes around preaching this. And as he does that, he's healing the sick as well, performing miracles. And this increases, Matthew says, at the end of chapter four, his fame spread. It spread throughout all of this area. And crowds began to gather. People began to flock to hear Jesus and to see this man, which is understandable. Again, sometimes we read our Bible and we think that all throughout history, at every time, there were always these crazy miracles happening and they're just, the Bible presents it as normal. But when Jesus shows up and starts preaching as he does and starts healing, it gets people's attention because in fact, it's not a normal occurrence. It is indeed a miracle. These are miracles he's performing. And so this is the situation. This is how the, the book of Matthew begins. And this is what leads right into Matthew chapter 5. I think it's difficult for us to really realize just how monumental of a, of a moment this was in the history of redemption, in the history of creation. The long-awaited Messiah, the King, promised as far back as Genesis 3.15, this promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would reverse this curse that Adam and Eve had brought into the world, has finally arrived. We are very familiar, of course, with the birth narrative of Jesus, uh, Christmas time and so on. It can become almost just a nice little tradition for us. But this is a, 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 a massive thing that is happening. 
king has arrived and he begins calling people to himself. He's announcing his kingdom has come and questions obviously arise. What is this going to look like? (laughs) The Messiah has come. What now? What's going to happen? What's his kingdom going to look like? What is he going to do? And obviously people had their own expectations of what that would look like. Some misunderstandings of the Old Testament scriptures. And we'll work through some of that in coming weeks. But this is a time in which fulfillment of these long-awaited promises was occurring. And then into chapter 5 here, continuing this fulfillment motif, reminiscent of Moses, who in Exodus 19 and 20, we see goes up a mountain. See, as the old covenant is formally established with the people of Israel. Here we have Jesus. As he is coming to usher in the new covenant, as he is coming to bring about and inaugurate his kingdom. Likewise, Jesus, who is the greater Moses, you remember Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, Moses prophesied about the greater prophet who would come after him. And here he is now. And he likewise goes up this mountain. Of course, instead of coming down with tablets, words written on stone, uh, without all of the thunder and terror and people have being told, stay away from the mountain, don't touch it lest you die. There are obvious differences. But Jesus goes up this mountain, people draw near to him, and he does begin to teach. And he presents here to the disciples what the, the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones called the perfect picture of life in the kingdom of heaven. So as Jesus is inaugurating his kingdom here, we have here very early still in Matthew's account of the gospel of Jesus, we have instruction about that kingdom that he gives for his people. As we think about this, these chapters, this section of teaching the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's fair to say that it is, it has been much abused and often very misunderstood by people. There's all kinds of bad takes on it, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll see some, we'll, we'll go over some of those uh, bad interpretations of it as we go through this series. There's all kinds of people who've misunderstood it. And to be fair, there are challenges within these these chapters. There are going to be some difficult things. And again, we will cross those and and deal with those when we come to them. But one of the problems with a lot of those bad interpretations of this is that people often want to just jump into the middle of this Sermon on the Mount somewhere and bypass how it all begins. They don't deal with it. They don't start with the same place Jesus starts with giving these beatitudes as we read. As the Lord begins his teaching here, he doesn't simply begin by telling his people or, or, or the, this crowd um, what they ought to be doing as his disciples. There's going to be some of that as it comes, but he, that's not where he begins. Nor does he even explicitly tell people in this message how people are to enter into his kingdom. Rather, he begins here by revealing some characteristics of those who have already entered into the kingdom. These Beatitudes reveal character traits 
of those who have entered the kingdom of heaven. Christ's people, Christians, kingdom citizens, these are synonymous disciples. These are really synonymous phrases, all with different nuances, different particular meaning, but all referring to the same group of people. Christ's people are not simply all who claim, I'm a Christian. In fact, the Lord himself is going to tell us that very explicitly in chapter 7, verse 21 of this sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Rather, as is clear throughout this, there are certain identifiable traits, characteristics, and, and as we'll see, fruits by which his disciples, by which citizens of God's kingdom can be known, can be identified. And it is with some of these character traits that our Lord begins. And so as we go through, and today we're just going to look at the first three of these Beatitudes. As we go through these characteristics, it's appropriate to ask yourself if these things do indeed characterize you. If these things are are true of you. And if they are, then I would invite you to hear again the precious promises that are attached to these characteristics. So as I said, today we're going to cover the first three of these Beatitudes as we look at verses 1 to 5. And in these first three, we see that true citizens of the kingdom of heaven are those who are marked by lowliness. By lowliness. That's how I would summarize these three. I think Floyd's actually the one who gave me that term, credit where it's due. Uh, But lowliness seems to summarize these first three. And really, this is not where one might expect Jesus to begin, if we're honest. We know we're familiar, maybe, with these Beatitudes. But that's, if you just think about what Matthew has just said and what's happening here, fulfillment, the Messiah is here, what's going to happen, what's going to mark people out, and he begins with these very lowly characteristics. Are, are the son of David and his descend, and his followers, are they really going to be marked out by a, a lowliness, a humility? This is where Jesus takes us. So the first thing we see, kingdom citizens are those marked by spiritual poverty. Kingdom citizens are those marked by spiritual poverty. We see this particularly in verse 3, but let's begin at verse 1 again. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Again, as I stated earlier, at the end of chapter 4, we're told that Jesus' fame had been spreading all throughout Galilee and Judea and beyond. And people, these crowds are gathering. At the end there, it says that great crowds followed him from all over these regions. And then in 5.1, it says that seeing the great crowds, he went up this mountain. So you have this crowd of, of interested people. Now we know from the Gospels as a whole, and especially when we read John's Gospel, that these crowds were often very fickle. Uh, Jesus at the end of John chapter 2, uh, there's all this hype about what he's doing. And it says he did not entrust himself to man for he, he did not need anyone to testify to him about man for he knew what was in a man. So he knew these crowds are, 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 are fickle. A lot of people are here as we see later in John chapter 6. You're just here and excited and looking for me because you ate the bread and, and the, lo- the loaves and the fish. Right after his feeding of the 5,000. You, you don't really... 
are you're not really here to, to, to believe in me or to, to, to really hear the words. You, you're just excited because I fed you and you, you, I'm useful to you, you think. This is the way the crowds often were. And certainly responding, wow, a, a miracle worker. Uh, this, this is part of what it, here in Matthew was drawing these people out. I think the end of chapter 4, verse 24, makes that pretty clear. But then with this great crowd, there's a second group that is mentioned here. It says, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. His disciples came to him. Now, at this point in the book of Matthew, Jesus has not yet called all of the 12, those who we often think of when we think of the disciples. This, this is a, a term is used generally here. This is not just ref- referring to the 12 that he called to follow him, but, but all who had responded to his message, all who had responded to John before him to repent and prepare and now to follow after Jesus, the King, the Messiah who has come. These are his followers. And so as we think about the audience that Jesus is addressing while he proclaims these teachings here, it's right, I think, to see certainly that there is a mixed group, this great crowd made up of disciples and others. And yet the main people, the primary audience that he's addressing are his disciples, those who are already believing in him and following him. And so it's essentially a discourse a teaching on discipleship. That's what this sermon amounts to. What it means, what it looks like to be a disciple. It's there for the benefit of disciples. But of course, with that as well, there's much in here that is instructive for the crowds, for anyone who is not yet a disciple. But I think this is important to understand this because we should view this teaching As instruction, again, aimed at those who are already disciples, what he's not laying out here is a pathway of what you have to do in order to become a disciple. In order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, here's a whole sermon of all these things that you've got to do. And and frankly, that's the way this sermon is often taken. We have to do all of these things in order to then uh, hopefully be in the kingdom of heaven. And even if we know that's probably not true as we think about justification by grace through faith alone, we still might read the Sermon on the Mount and see some, as Jesus will teach and proclaim a very high standard of righteousness and holiness. In fact, so high, he says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And we think, well, uh, what? That's a problem for us because we fall short of that. And so certainly Jesus is telling us the high benchmark of righteousness, that if, if this is what righteousness is. It's the perfection of God. And we have to keep in mind, of course, that anytime we are dealing with law, and there is law throughout this Sermon on the Mount, it's going to function the way law passages function. It's going to reveal the fact that you and I fall short of the glory of God. Be perfect. Okay. We've not done that. It's going to reveal that we are sinful and thereby drive us to see our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Drive us to see our need for forgiveness. Drive us to see our need for a righteousness that clearly I don't possess, that's outside of me, that only comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly this sermon has that effect and it ought to. But then of course we also know 
That law, the law not only drives us to see our need for Christ, but it does also for those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It instructs us as his people about what it is that pleases God. What it is that he delights in. What it is that we as his people then aim for. As we saw back in Philippians, Paul talks about how he's not yet been made perfect, but he's striving on. He's pressing on to make it his own. He's, he's, he's aiming for that mark. Not so that he might enter into the kingdom, but because he belongs to God by his, God's grace. And we will get, of course, to those passages when we get there. But the whole thing is not simply Jesus laying out law for us. Because that's not where he begins. Jesus goes up on this mountain, one of the mountains in Galilee, perhaps just off the Sea of Galilee. And this greater Moses sits down, it says, that's common posture amongst teachers back then. Verse 2 says, he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, those words might be familiar to you if you've been in church long enough or you know your Bible well enough. But it's really quite an astonishing place to begin this message. The word blessed, blessed, this means that such people that Jesus is describing here and throughout the Beatitudes, such people are in a happy condition or they're in a favored position. The one who is in a good place, a happy condition, the one who is indeed blessed of God in this way is not said to be the materially wealthy. That's how we might might think. People in Jesus' day certainly did. We might think that way now. It's not the materially wealthy, but it is rather the poor in spirit, Jesus says. This is those who have realized their spiritual bankruptcy. Before Almighty God. It is referring to a spiritual poverty. And indeed, this is what the Bible teaches all throughout it. That that men and women as descendants of Adam, we are born in sin and we commit sin. We have zero spiritual riches in and of ourselves. Even when people know what God desires and what pleases Him... When he writes that with his own finger in stone, man still doesn't do it. Even when they agree that's good or probably good, they still don't do it. We are sinful. Isaiah tells us even even our own righteous deeds are like filthy rags. We don't fully understand how majestic and holy God is and how great and powerful and mighty and awesome he is and thereby don't really understand the offense and the true wickedness that our sinfulness is and yet man is arrogant before God we suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness and we exalt ourselves we worship all manner of created things rather than the one true God the holy creator of all things. We believe ourselves to be spiritually rich, actually. I'm not like other people. I'm a good person. 
I'm not perfect, maybe, but I'm a good person. We make ourselves the standard of what is good. But disciples of Christ, those who are in his kingdom, are those who have heard the word of God concerning these matters and have heard the word of judgment and doom that stands over us as sinners, understanding that as a sinner I am under God's wrath, I stand condemned beneath his judgment and justice, Disciples of Christ understand this, have come to see this in themselves, not just in other people, but in ourselves. Disciples of Christ can no longer and will no longer hide or deny our spiritual poverty. The one who would be Christ's disciple comes under conviction and is under no pretense about their own righteousness. There is a recognition that, in fact, I am a spiritual beggar. We come to God empty-handed. We don't clean ourselves up a little bit and then enter and come to God. Rather, as Jesus taught elsewhere, those who are justified are those simply who recognize our woeful condition, beat our breasts, and, and, and appeal to God to be merciful to me, a sinner. This is an essential characteristic of Christ's people. It is only the poor in spirit who respond to Jesus' call to repent, to agree with God's judgment about you and your sin, and then place their faith in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin. It is only the spiritually destitute that sees the need for the righteousness outside of yourself. It's only the spiritually destitute who then embrace by faith the righteousness that God gives as a gift. And so it is that the spiritually poor could possibly be considered to be blessed in a happy state, a good condition, a good place. For in spiritual poverty, they've received mercy and grace from God, having been forgiven and indeed It says here, the reason their state is blessed for, because theirs is the kingdom of God. Again, recognition of spiritual poverty is a mark of kingdom citizens. We are not, in fact, heroes. We are not, in fact, champions. We are not titans. We are not lions. We are empty-handed beggars who have been graciously made citizens of the kingdom of heaven simply because it pleased God to do so in his grace, simply received by faith. And no matter how far you might progress in the school of godliness in this life, you will, believers in Christ Jesus, his kingdom citizens, will never move beyond this understanding that I am poor in spirit in relation to God's holiness. And notice it says here, theirs is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. If you're someone who is trusting in Christ Jesus, having recognized your poverty and and need of him, you presently are members of the kingdom of heaven, citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, 
For theirs is, present tense, the kingdom. There have been debates over the years about what exactly Matthew means here by kingdom of heaven. It's a phrase, kingdom of heaven, that is only used in Matthew, in Matthew's gospel. And some have tried to say that this is a different thing from the kingdom of God that we read about in other gospels and elsewhere. But in examine, if you examine the ways that both phrases are used in Matthew and then in the other gospels, it becomes very apparent that these are synonymous terms, synonymous phrases. They're used interchangeably. It's possible, though, that kingdom of heaven may have a particular nuance to it that emphasizes the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God a little bit more. That this is a heavenly kingdom. And we know that Jesus, his disciples, I should say, Jesus' disciples and many other in Je- others in Jesus' day, they had a very physical, a very earthly view of the Messiah's kingdom. They expected David's son to come to set up his literal throne here in Jerusalem, and he would reign with his people there. They expected, think David in the Old Testament, only just greater than that David. That's what they were expecting. And Jesus very often had to combat this. Now, it's not that that idea is, is completely without any warrant or is totally wrong, but it is certainly incomplete. In Matthew's gospel account, we see that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, and he'll use both phrases in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will. The kingdom of heaven is something that is here now. Again, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is entered into now by faith. It is among you. It is in you. But we also find out in Matthew... <coughs> That the kingdom of heaven is not yet here in fullness. (coughs) Excuse me. The full glory of the kingdom of heaven has not yet been revealed. When Jesus came the first time, (coughs) he did not come and usher in the fullness of his kingdom. He brought it. But there's this concept throughout Matthew, throughout the Gospels, throughout the Scriptures of what is often called the now and the not yet. It is here now, it is inaugurated now, but we are yet awaiting its coming in its fullness, in its completed form. And within Matthew's Gospel, we do see this. This has not all been laid out uh, yet as in chapter 5 yet, but he's already been preaching the kingdom of heaven is here, clearly The disciples in Jesus' day had entered into it. And yet, as we continue through Matthew, particularly into Matthew chapter 24 and in verse 30, we see that Christ's future coming, he would return a second time. And at that time, he would usher in the fullness of his kingdom. And now, in its current form, The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. If you would be a citizen of Christ's kingdom, it is not enough to simply be born into the nation of Israel if you were in Jesus' day. 
nor is it enough simply to be born into a Christian home or into the church today. Christ's people, those who are in the kingdom, are marked out by, among other things, this spiritual poverty and recognition of it. And let's just remind ourselves here that this is really, this is good news. This is good news that Jesus begins the sermon in this way. That he doesn't just come out with a standard of morality that we've got to try and measure up to. But rather a recognition of our spiritual poverty. In fact, Jesus begins the sermon by telling us that those in his kingdom actually are those who don't measure up to the standard of perfect righteousness that he will go on to discuss later in the sermon. So we can't get to those parts and then think, oh, he's somehow introducing legalism here and I've got to meet this standard. We can't divorce that from how he begins this sermon with the words, blessed are the poor in spirit. And again, this is good news because we can come and we are to come empty-handed to the Lord for mercy and grace. Christ's people are marked by a lowliness that acknowledges this spiritual poverty and are reliant upon God's mercy and grace. The second beatitude builds upon this and teaches that kingdom citizens are those marked by mourning. Kingdom citizens are those marked by mourning. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, Everybody who who walks on this planet for any length of time mourns. We mourn about one thing or another. We suffer loss. We suffer crushing disappointment, death. But the particular mourning that this is talking about here of those in the kingdom of heaven is a mourning over the misery and ruin of sin. It is first a mourning over, over your own sin and ungodliness. Realizing its insult to Almighty God. Realizing its effect upon others around you. Realizing it is the reason why you are breaking down in your body as you get older. The very reason why you suffer. The very reason why you will one day die if the Lord tarries. It is first mourning over your own sin, your own poverty of spirit. But I think it is also more than this. It is a mourning in general over, over the sin that is all around us in this world, the condition of the world. It is sin that stands at the root of all the wickedness that we see everywhere. All the suffering of man's bruta- absolute brutality towards man. How tragic and awful. This is what God's good creation has descended into as a result of sin. Even things that we would call natural disasters are a reminder that the world itself, the natural realm, the world that we inhabit that was created good is now also under the curse of sin. And so human beings die because of flooding, because of tornadoes, because of all manner of natural disaster, famine, etc., All of this reminds us that this world is cursed because of sin. Death itself, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, if you were here in this service, 
That death is not just a natural part of life, as some people say. It is not part of a circle of life. That's just the, the way it is. It's natural. It's not. It's an enemy. It's part of the curse upon this world. It's tragic. It is the result of sin. Christians feel this. God's people feel this weight. Mourn over this. But furthermore, even as his people who know the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is redemption from this sin. As the Lord's people, we go to others, these sinners who are just absolutely devastated by sin, beaten down by it, perhaps ignorant about all of these things. You go to them with this good news of the gospel. And so often, how, what's the response? Eh, just not interested or anywhere from just not interested all the way to, to persecution. There's good news of redemption. There is a, a, a reverse coming of this curse in total when the Lord Jesus returns. There is a savior. It won't always be this way. Death doesn't, is not the final end for those in Christ. And people just don't want any part of that. Of course, that's not always the response, but often we do run into that. These people trapped by sin, devastated by it, refusing the cure, not seeing their own spiritual poverty. How can one not spend time, some measure of time, mourning these things? A Christian is not one who pretends that the world is really not that bad. We know better. And yet, as much as it's unpleasant to think about mourning these things, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. While it is impossible for Christ's people to avoid the sadness of the plight of the earth now, nevertheless, for God's people, there is a true and a lasting and eternal comfort to be had. Obviously, this begins with believing the gospel, trusting in the Lord Jesus, who was crucified and risen from the dead on behalf of sinners. So that we might be forgiven God's wrath toward us, satisfied, turned away our sins, expiated, done away with. This is where rejoicing begins. The Christian is one who knows rejoicing. We talked a lot about rejoicing when we were in the book of Philippians. And yet the comfort that is spoken of here in verse 4 is put in the future tense. And it would seem to be pointing to a full and ultimate comfort that will yet occur in the future. Even as Christians rejoice in forgiveness of sins now, the good things of God now, we receive these things with gratitude. We still have a poverty of spirit. We still sin ourselves. We still live in a fallen world. We can't avoid these things our sorrow here is, or our, our comfort here is not a perfected comfort. A massive part, in fact, of our comfort in present days is the knowledge of future ultimate comfort. The understanding that for those in Christ, the, that death is not the end. That in fact, death now means that our spirits go to be with the Lord. And also we know from scripture that even that is not the final end and the final state. 
But rather, that will come when the Lord Jesus does return a second time, when he does usher in the fullness of his kingdom. And as we saw again a couple weeks ago from 1 Corinthians 15, when we receive the resurrection from the dead, when our bodies are raised and our spirits are united again with our bodies and we are raised imperishable. And we will dwell forever in the new creation. And at that time, we will experience, actually live in eternal comfort. There is comfort in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you mourn your sin, you understand your spiritual poverty, recognize sin is at the root. If you look out at the world and understand all of these, this wickedness we see, wherever we might look, all of the trials faced ultimately have their root in sin. There is comfort in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a measure of it now for the Lord's people. But there is also eternal comfort to come. For Christ's people, the experience of true and ultimate happiness and comfort is deferred. So we don't go around now chasing after temporary things so as to try to gain that uh, comfort now. We don't have to chase those things. We don't have to chase after sinful things to try to just get through the day or something like that. We live in light of an eternal comfort that is going to be ours. Thirdly, finally, and briefly, kingdom citizens are those marked by gentleness. Verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek is is certainly not a bad translation, but I'm not entirely sure just how helpful it is given the way that word has come to be defined in recent years. In modern dictionaries, you'll find definitions like meek refers to someone who is easily imposed upon. Someone not willing to argue or express their opinion in a forceful way. Someone who is deficient in courage and spirit. Someone who is not strong. That's a relatively new meaning given to the word meek. None of those things are what this word here means. The English word used to speak of patient endurance in the face of injury without resentment. The Greek word that is used here, translated meek, means to not be overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It is often translated in the New Testament as gentle, could be humble, considerate, and as long as we understand the word right, meek is also valid. This is someone who is, it's not referring to someone who's just a pushover or doesn't hold fast to conviction or never asserts those convictions. Rather, as D.A. Carson writes in his commentary, to be meek toward others implies freedom from malice and a vengeful spirit. This comes from having a proper view of ourselves and it's getting at how we would then relate to other people. We are gentle with other people, patient with others. We understand God's patience and grace toward us. We can be patient with one another. Not self-asserting, overbearing, demanding of everybody else, putting ourselves in the first place. Demanding 
Every little insult be punished. Jesus will speak more of this later in the Sermon on the Mount. And it is these, Jesus says, not the aggressive, harsh, tyrannical leaders. It is meek people who will inherit the earth. Again, it would be easy to think that the son of David and his people, they're going to be a big deal, obviously, and they're going to aggressively take over a very large territory, bulldoze those Romans, get them out of here. They're going to be forcing their way on other people. And if you don't comply, it'll be the sword with you. They'll be retaliating against anyone who crosses them. And yet this is not how Jesus begins the sermon. This is not the characteristic of the son of David's true subjects. There will be a time, of course, when Jesus will judge the nations. But he describes his people here as being those who are meek. This beatitude is very clearly uh, referring to Psalm 37, verse 11, which says, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Here in Matthew, when it says they shall inherit the earth, that can be translated legitimately as earth, or it could be land. Sometimes it can refer to the whole of the earth. Sometimes it can refer to a, a particular location. To inherit was common Old Testament language referring to the promised land. And yet, even the promised land was never the ultimate land of rest for God's people. It was never the ultimate inheritance. This becomes, I think it's there if you read the Old Testament, but this becomes even clearer in light of the New Testament teaching. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham himself promised the promised land Abraham himself was looking for a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God in Hebrews 11.10. And it goes on to say that the saints of old, the Old Testament saints, (coughs) desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Hebrews 11 goes on to say that Old Testament saints, though receiving many promises, didn't receive the ultimate promise since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. (coughs) Excuse me. There is a better inheritance to come, even than that promised land that God had promised to Abraham and then to his descendants. It is the thing that that land was pointing ahead to, namely the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. And all along, it has been God's plan that old covenant believers, new covenant believers, all of us together will enter into the fullness of that together. That's what Hebrews 11 is telling us in verse 40. And this will occur again when the Lord Jesus comes and establishes the new creation in its fullness upon his return. This is an inheritance, Peter tells us, is presently being kept in heaven for you if you're believing in Christ, pure and undefiled. That is nothing less than the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. And the characteristic of those who enter into that is not being brash, It is not being arrogant, lording it over people, 
but it is rather enduring evil in faith and being marked by gentleness with our fellow man. Again, these first three Beatitudes reveal to us that those who belong to the kingdom are characterized by a spiritual lowliness, poverty of spirit, mourning for sin, and meekness or gentleness. The reality is that none of these characteristics are, are that which man can just drum up on our own strength. In our fallen condition, again, we are arrogant, we are self-assertive, we are the very opposite of these things Jesus has said. One of the things that this Sermon on the Mount will show us over and over again is that essential to being a citizen in Christ's kingdom is experiencing the new birth. Having God by his spirit come and change the sinful heart of stone into a heart of flesh. This is absolutely essential. This work of God by his spirit that would soften the heart. This is what allows a man to see and recognize his spiritual poverty for what it is. This is what it can change a selfish or arrogant man into a gentle one. It is the only way a man can become sensitive to his sin, to his own sin, sin in himself, and to be able to grieve and mourn over sin all around him. The same Jesus who spoke these Beatitudes and this whole sermon we're going to look at also told Nicodemus, which was read for us earlier, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When a man is truly born again, the characteristics we find in the Beatitudes, they will be present. It doesn't mean, of course, that there will be a perfect spiritual humility. It's not that there's never pride, but there is an acknowledged and confessed and understood spiritual poverty. If you've never experienced this, understand that this is your need. Understand your need to be born again. Call out to God to save you. Repent of your sin. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if these characteristics do belong to you, then I would encourage you, rejoice in the promises that are are given here to you. To you belongs presently, now, and in the future, a greater uh, experience of it. But to you belongs the kingdom of heaven. You shall be comforted and you will inherit the earth, the new creation. This is our gracious God and his promises to his people. Let's pray. Our heavenly father, your word is true. It testifies to our spiritual poverty. And we thank you that such a condition could ever be blessed. We thank you that we don't have to gain our spiritual riches before we come to you, but we come to you empty-handed and get clothed with spiritual blessings by your grace. 
Father, I pray that you would banish from us all of any remaining self-righteousness. Father, we are sinful people in need of your grace and mercy every moment of every day, and this is the way it ought to be, and it is good. Father, it's not good that we sin, but your word is good, your salvation is good. Father, we praise you for sending your son to take up our obligations to die for our sins, to rise again from the dead. We thank you that you grant sinners who have nothing the righteousness of God by faith. Father, I pray that we would be those who hold fast to this. I pray that we would be those who receive the comfort of your word that speaks of us belonging to the kingdom. Father, so often we just struggle through every day We don't feel great about many things, if anything. Father, help us to hold fast to these truths, to know that we belong to you, not because we are good, precisely because we're not, and we understand that, precisely because you are good and you have made salvation. You have purchased it through Christ. Father, strengthen us in these things. Renew our hearts that we might further despise our sinfulness and and love and long for Holiness. God, we we praise you. We thank you for this day that we can gather and worship you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.